Welcome, everyone. If I can have your attention, please. We are thrilled to have with us today Mike Allen from Politico. Uh, given the attendance here, I'm pretty sure he needs no introduction, but I will proceed to give him a very brief one in any case. Uh, Mike Allen is one of the first employees at Politico and uh, writes the daily playbook email. For anyone who has lived and worked in Washington, D.C. or in politics in the United States generally, or anyone who's just simply obsessed with politics, the playbook email is really a, a must-read every morning. I despair to think at the hour with which you get up to write that every morning. And the um, New York Times described it as the quote-unquote summer camp newsletter for Washington, D.C.'s political elite, covering everything from birthdays to... Uh, archery. You know, archery. You know. The crash yeah. later, you know. Was it Robert Gibbs's kids' Pinewood Derby victory? Uh, you he made, name it. He shaped it like an iPod. It was really cool. <laughs> it beat the sub sandwich. By many measures, Mike Allen is the man who is everywhere in Washington, D.C., and yet and knows everything. And uh, we're just delighted to have him here to talk to us about uh, Politico, about an email newsletter as the vehicle that shapes, uh, shapes lots of cable news coverage and, and, and political conversation, and what it's like to be a, to be a, a journalist in the digital age. Uh, Welcome. Well, th uh, well, thank you, Nico, very much. Thank you guys very much. Uh, thank you so much for this uh, hospitality. I'm so excited to be here, the honor of uh, talking to you, uh, and look forward to very quickly bringing you into the conversation. But I was just going to tee up a couple ideas here. And one of them is that right before our eyes, the press is discovering a new role for itself after the 2012 election. You know, uh, sometimes we're referees. Uh, this was the election of the fact check. And sometimes we're entertainers. And sometimes we even educate or illuminate. But this time, we have a sudden and fascinating and exciting new job that's unfolding right now, and that is detective. <laughs> We're trying to figure out what the hell just happened. And if you've ever had the misfortune of being in a car accident, you'll know that eyewitnesses are not very reliable. And none of us agree on what we just saw. So almost like a geologist or a sociologist, we're going back and you're seeing it in uh, bits and pieces. The tiles of the mosaic are coming out in the media each day, trying to figure out why we had this black swan election. I think we all agreed, and Mark can uh, disagree or rebut, but I think we all thought that 08 was a once-in-a-lifetime event. And the Obama campaign darn near replicated and they even bested themselves in some way and and uh, very very few people uh, either saw it coming or understood exactly why it happened and one of the uh, notions that I have and I'd love to uh, stress test this with y'all but on election night a lot of what happened was the result of forces set in motion months years ago and you almost wonder if Romney had a chance for many, many uh, months, if you look at, at how the Obama folks actually achieved uh, their victory. Now, uh, the amazing thing that the Obama uh, brain trust did is win the presidency under two totally different theories of the case. In 08, they won it under one of the most optimistic, broadest campaigns ever, and this time they won it under one of the narrowest, cynical, surgical campaigns that you can imagine. And their secret seemed to be, if you were in investing, the buy and hold strategy. A year ago, they told us, it's going to be narrow, it's going to be nasty, we're going to talk to women, we're going to talk to Hispanics, we're going to talk about jobs, and we're going to crush him on the auto bailout in Ohio. Check, 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 check. That was a year ago. And that was what they told us they were going to do. Um, and if you look at um, how Romney lost, that too was a result of forces that were in place months ago. Maybe the two biggest 
mistakes of the campaign were, one, getting to the right of Rick Perry on immigration. Turns out that he needed Hispanic votes a lot more than he needed Rick Perry voters. Uh, Rick Perry turned out not to be that big of a threat to him. And he should have put out his tax returns um, months and months and months and months and months earlier. Uh, the Obama folks told, told us that the tax returns turned out to be a big deal in focus groups. They came up again and again because it was something that people just kind of latched onto. Uh, my brother, uh, Scott, who lives in a, a swing state in North Carolina, um, is an electrical engineer, sort of upscale, pretty conservative uh, voter. He reads Barron's on the weekend. Do I need to tell you anything more? Um, and he really didn't like, he, I'm sure, voted for Romney, but he really didn't like the tax return thing. He was saying that, yes, it's legal, but that's not the kind of person that should be out saying they're going to make America strong. So it really stuck in people's minds. And the biggest thing is it helped the Obama folks make the case that they wanted to make, like in their focus groups very early on. And some of you maybe saw an interview that I did over the weekend with David Axelrod. I went to Chicago on Friday, the last day that Obama for America headquarters was open, and sat down with him for an hour. And uh, just asked him the sort of like what a cop would ask someone after a car accident. What did you What did you think then? What did you say then? Why did you do this? What did they do? What did you, When did you know? And one of the things that he uh, told us there is that very early in their focus groups, the idea that Romney was a businessman was a big thing to people. That it uh, in their mind gave him some sort of special key to solving uh, economic problems. And uh, that's why they very smartly and uh, very ruthlessly early when um, Romney, uh, partly out of necessity, uh, but partly uh, out of a strategic mistake, uh, held back on uh, defining himself, on putting out his message. Romney at fundraisers would tell people, um, you know, because of the primary, we don't have money now. Um, in the spring and summer, he said, well, we'll have plenty of money when people are listening in the fall. And it turned out that in the fall, it was way too late. And uh, what's funny, and tell me if this is right, Mark, people say that the, the, the Romney people, ironically, didn't learn the lessons of Bush 04. That's just amazing. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, talk about, did you define Kerry early? Uh, well, absolutely. And that's what, I you know, I think that the, the Obama team did a, a masterful job but, you know, I hear people talking about this innovative idea of, you know, attacking early and defining early. Well, that was obvious. I mean, but it worked. But, well, no, I know it, it absolutely worked. But my point is, it was so obvious right. that that's what they were going to do. It's right. just unimaginable. I mean, because we'd done it before in 2004. They say that there was no plan B. And there wasn't. There wasn't a plan B in 2004. So what I don't get is how something so obvious to everybody, why you would not have a counter strategy on the Romney well, side. Well, you know the Romney folks. Why didn't they? I, I, I haven't talked to him. I don't know. Right. So uh, while Romney was being defined and they were taking away his, his big asset, the, the Mr. Fix-It, uh, the businessman um, thing, and at the same time, the Romney folks knew uh, that they were uh, in trouble on one big uh, attribute, and they were right. Uh, they knew this six months ago, and it was plain as day in the exit polls. They told me six months ago, they pulled out all the polls, and they said, this is the one that we have to fix. And the one that they had to fix was not likability. It was understands the problems of people like me. Because they were frank. They said, like, we're not going to be the most likable guy in this race. And they were actually pretty smart about it. They're like, it's like in high school. Like, the more likable you try to be, like, that's not going to have a good outcome. And, and yet... It's a big problem, and it's another reason that uh, sort of tectonic forces uh, were not on Romney's side, that at least going back to Carter, and maybe before you all uh, can uh, think it through, we have voted for the more obviously likable person. George W. Bush over John Kerry, uh, Bill Clinton over anybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, and... You know, the, the Obama folks said it slightly differently. They said, you know, someone who feels comfortable with themselves, that people get a sense of that. Or the way that they said it over time was uh, someone that you feel like you know, that 
for better or for worse, people felt like they knew the presidents. So what did you say that they understood that? So what yeah. did they do to address it? Uh, beats me. Um, <laughs> and there were a couple moments that I thought that Romney was more likely to lose than to win. And um, one of them was the day of the uh, Olympics um, quote. Because he was, the problem with it was that he was in London when he said it. And I was there too. And you didn't have to be there long to know two things. One is that the Olympics were going great. The, the run-up was going great. And B, people were excited about it. And so when he took a shot at the uh, Olympics, sort of uh, not getting his role, he was, he was almost as a political commentator or a management consultant, when that's not what's called for in the um, – uh, this is a loner. I actually had an iPhone that uh, uh, was uh, stolen from me, so I'm back on the ferry for a minute. Um, uh, he didn't have, like, what I call a sense of the room, like that political gene that you just have to have. It was, it was just so wrong for his role. And uh, I think that, that that was his problem in a number of, of um, areas. A discovery that uh, my colleague Jim Vandehei and I made – and we wrote a bunch about this, and no one else um, uh, had discovered it, even though it was plain, in plain sight where a lot of the best stories are. Oh, uh, Romney, the business guy, the systems guy, Mr. Fixit, had designed an unbelievably dysfunctional campaign. Um, you had the sort of traditional campaign under the manager, Matt Rhodes, where you had you know, political field communications, which was extremely well-run, very metrics-based. Then you had the, the consultants planet, which is Stuart Stevens, Rush Schrieffer, who did the convention, speech writing, and advertising. And then you had the, uh, the old Boston advisors, uh, and then you had the Washington advisors, and then you had some best friends. And they all had access to the candidate, and they all had some authority. And so there weren't clear lines of accountability and authority. And the way one person who was inside explained it to me was Romney thought he was the CEO, and he liked it. They, he, they say this was intentional. He liked it this way because he wanted to be the final word. But in fact, he was the product, and that was the design flaw in the campaign. Um, similarly, the uh, Obama campaign uh, – going off what they knew, what they'd done from 08, was designed very much like a corporation. And just as Bush Cheney 04 uh, was criticized for being too corporate and people made fun of the, you know, the flower pots in the, in the, in the office park and all that, uh, but it, it ran very efficiently. And that's much more how uh, the Obama campaign ran. Uh, David Pluff, the White House senior advisor, was the sort of mastermind Jim Messina, the campaign manager, uh, carried it out, and uh, policies that had been put in place months, years before were very helpful to them. And like clockwork, they did stuff for women, for Hispanics, for students. Uh, and they were very much a narrow cast campaign. One way to think about this campaign is that uh, uh, you can say that uh, Obama was the community organizer and Romney was the ad agency. That uh, Obama was retail, Romney was wholesale. Romney's gamble was that you could uh, sell a big idea, whereas the Obama people recognized early on that they weren't going to sell a big idea. And that wasn't they. And I remember year two, year three when they were talking about it. For a while, they talked about could could reform be the new change, and they talked about doing that, and they knew that wasn't going to work. And so what they realized that they had to do was they had to find every last one of their voters and get them. And they did. And this is why you had these 08-like numbers in key states that took almost everyone by surprise. And the best example is in Ohio. African Americans uh, go uh, 94, 95, 96% for the president. So you turn them out, you get their vote. Uh, African Americans are 12% of the, po uh, the voting age population of Ohio. 11% of them turned out um, uh, in 08. They got 15%. 15% um, uh, of the voter mix um, in 12. So, so like that is just um, 
uh, relentless, methodical yeah, ID uh, turnout. Um, and, that, and that's not just new, younger African-American voters, right? Right. It was, uh, they had this, years ago, they started doing this beauty shops and barbershop voter registration campaign that was very effective. I, I think that's a, a, just an amazing thing, you know, I mean, to think that, you know, obviously the attraction you had for African-American voters in 08, and to up that number in, in 12, pretty substantially in some areas like Ohio. And uh, resurgent republic uh, organization started by uh, Ed Gillespie, among others, uh, calculated that if the, and this is how close these elections are, and this is how mechanical these elections are, and that's how I think that even more than 08, and, and you guys please disagree, I think even more than 08, what they did this year ch will change forever the way campaigns are run. Because listen to this. Yeah. According to Resurgent Republic's calculations, if the African-American uh, component had been the same this time that it was in 08, Romney would have won that state. Here's the other... Ohio. Yes, excuse me, would have won Ohio. Here's the other most vivid example of that. McCain um, lost independence by 5-8 five, five, points. Romney won independence by 5, 8, 10 points. So there was like a 15-point swing. And yet he lost the election. And if I had asked you a year ago if, if somebody was going to be able to take independence up 15 points, I'd be like, congratulations, Mr. President. Right. And, that, and, that, and that's, that's, that's one of the conventional wisdoms that got shot down, right, is that, that, that Romney and lots of others, including me, assumed that if you won independence, you'd win. And so is there any sense out of last Friday if they're going to try and keep that and make that part of, like, the Democratic Party's institutional structure? That's such a great question, and it's unanswered. It's the most valuable database in America, no question. There's nothing else even close. And what happens to it is a huge question. Now, what they're saying, uh, and this is true as far as it goes, but it, it begs the very good, the great question that you're asking. What they're saying is that, um, yes, we had all these amazing tools that um, – allowed us to uh, tell us how likely someone is to donate, like how likely someone is to show up to volunteer, all that. But they had to care about Barack Obama and that they had to have the um, identification with the candidate before there was anything to do. So their argument is that, like, all these tricks and tools are not um, yeah, to, to Hillary Clinton or whatever. Uh, so do, you think, do you think they had any impact on down-ballot races? Like, there's people in this room who would know that better than I do. I know that, sure, um, uh, in part because we know from talking to the Senate and House candidates that after debate one, um, Democrats took a hit and Republicans got well everywhere. So uh, there was a sort of gravitational pull. And I haven't looked. This would be a very interesting question. Somebody in this room may have. I've not looked how uh, far ahead or behind Romney the uh, Republican Senate candidates ran. That would be a very interesting thing to look at. I, I, like, I haven't even looked at what uh, Kane and Obama, which would be very interesting. But I'm just going to make one more quick point about the press and then bring you into the conversation. Reporters have always had two jobs. Uh, going back to my first job was uh, most people in this room have never heard of this, but there used to be something called an evening paper. Um, it was the dangest thing. Uh, you would, you would, go, to, you would uh, go to work in the morning, and you'd go to lunch, and you'd never came back. It was like a great... Um, like way to do uh, journalism. But uh, we've always had two jobs. And one is uh, whether we're covering a mayor, a governor, a university professor, whoever we're, a university president, whoever we're covering, like half the job is what's in front of your face. What is the guy or woman doing, saying, putting in your hand, um, uh, here they come, there they go. The other half of the job, and what's always been the more important half of the job is what is it that we don't see? Like, who are they talking to? Who influences them? What did they decide not to do? What are they going to do next week? Now, that's all of the job. Because the first half of the job is now available in real time to everyone. Even in my first, uh, I was talking to Gina Glantz on the way, and my first camp national campaign was Bill Bradley in 2000 when he ran against Al Gore. And then I covered uh, President Bush uh, for two campaigns. And even then, like, the, the fixings of the basic campaign story for the Washington Post were the speech text and the policy paper that they put in your hand on the bus and the audience's reaction. And now you have all that live. You watch the speech on BarackObama.com or MittRomney.com, the policy paper on the web, and you look at the reaction on Twitter. So the New York Times or Politico has no reason to exist if uh, that's 
the part of the job we're doing. So what we like about that is that uh, the fact that we now depend on the other half of the job, uh, either um, uh, connecting dots or using our um, convening power to get interesting interviews or um, whatever it is um, that rewards the best journalists, the smartest, most aggressive, uh, uh, highest metabolism uh, journalism. So if you have a story to tell, and that could be if you're a reporter, it could be if you're a candidate, um, it could be if, if you're a corporation, it could be if you're a government. If you have a story to tell, there's never been a better time to do it because more people are consuming information in more ways, in more places, more often than ever. And it used to be that if you were a candidate or if you were a corporation and you wanted um, people like yourselves to see a story, you had to convince a reporter for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the AP to use it. And you were totally dependent, uh, like they held all the cards, like how it was going to be written, what it was going to include, when it was going to come out. Um, now they hold no cards because uh, you have a million places you can go with that story um, and you can just put it out on markmckinnon.com. So uh, there's a couple things uh, just uh, throughout and I'd love to uh, hear from you. Let me, uh, so let me just remind people we're using a hashtag pound Mike Allen if you want to tweet about this. Let me ask you one quick question and then, and then we'll see what hands we have. One, in 08, Twitter was in its infancy. Mm -hmm. And this election, it will really seem to be a central kind of point, vehicle or gathering place or, or for a lot of political discussion and debate. So I wondered if you had thoughts on the, what, what role or impact Twitter had on the, uh, on the presidential race, on the way the media covered the presidential race. I remember watching the debates, uh, and it felt like cable news was reading other people's tweets. That's all they were doing. You know, what, any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, no, thank you. And I want to learn from people in this room about that, but just to, to kick it off, um, uh, a great description that uh, Taylor Griffin... That's for you, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, in all the t at the uh, Washington Post, they'd have politicians uh, come in for editorial boards. Anytime somebody is... Uh, either head of state or a uh, politician would come in. They come in and uh, uh, have lunch at the post and the big people would sit around the table and we would sit over here. And in uh, uh, Len Downey, who was the executive editor, used to say that in the decades that he had done that, there was only one politician who actually ate their food. <laughs> and they didn't just eat, they cleaned their plate. And it was Al Gore. He was a, he was a hungry boy. Um, uh, but uh, tweets. So a brilliant description of Twitter uh, from uh, our friend Taylor Griffin is, it's like hanging out in the filing center or on the press bus. Or, more importantly for us, in a family room, a living room, um, a, a student lounge where you're watching an event or you're watching our coverage. And responding to it, and that part of it's fantastic. Like there was, there uh, was surprisingly high interest in this election and polling the whole time. A month out, pollsters said that the intensity of interest in the campaign looked like what you'd normally see a week out. And I think that's partly because people were experiencing it themselves, enjoying it themselves. Uh, the problem with it is uh, the group think that much more. Partly because there's a lot more younger reporters out there, which I think is great in many ways, and partly because of Twitter, you much more have reporters saying, should we cover this? Like, how are you covering, like, what should we say? Like, what's the lead? What's the headline? Reporters have always kind of done that a little bit, but it was kind of a party foul to, like, really talk about what you were going to write until you wrote. But now it's all so organic and all unfolds sort of in real time. And so I think that uh, I could be wrong and uh, definitely somebody rebut this, but I think the echo chamber may be worse. Um, so anyway, I'd like to hear from you all about Twitter because we're learning about it. We could use it better. We could use it smarter. Questions, comments? Yeah, I'm going to give priority to students. Excuse me. Um, just to follow up on this, yeah. so Tim Krause wrote The Boys on the Bus years ago. It is much worse. Um, What's the lead, Walter? Right? Walter Mears right. from the AP. And, yeah. and, and, and the thing is, we're losing logic and logistics. When you add up how the press covered things, it was so clear where people stood and what they wanted to see. The Supreme Court ruling was the case where people didn't even get to the back of, the, of what the Supreme Court issued. So if you look at the body politic, all the leading indicators are taking a nosedive. We got a winner, but all the systems are failing. 
the reputation of everything is going down, including trust in business, public trust in media, where I have a lot of friends, um, public trust in the persuasion industry. You know, spins one thing, but when it doesn't add up, when it balkanizes, that's a little different. So I'm wondering from your point of view, if you buy into this idea that things aren't fitting back together, that we don't have, we have now people saying we should have secession, right? We're not even, we're not even talking about doing something. Okay, now. if you were NPR or the New York Times or Politico, what would you do? You've I would this. get amazingly capable people who haven't been invited into the conversation to say, how do we actually fix these specific areas? Because they're not on TV. The people understand how healthcare used to work and where it went off the rails. Same thing with Detroit. Right, the same thing with media coverage. And some of the people have been here who talked about how media coverage used to work. In other words, blending the generations. Mm -hmm. And getting those conversations to be prominent so that now we're starting to be a learning community as a nation. But right now, there's this, this balkanization by generation, by sector, by silo. And it's not, it's not, it's like the pistons have come out of the engine or something. I think that's good. I have a question. You talked about how the um, you know the new media landscape makes it easier for people to get their stories broadcast. How is it for journalists? Um, and and if you could tell me a little bit about your own job, like how it's changed. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, first of all, um, oh, and can you just say who you are too? My name is Tara McKelvey, and I'm also a journalist. Okay, okay, thank you, Tara. So the she's a journalist. Okay, great. So the the original idea for Politico, we just passed our sixth birthday. Uh, we started with 35 people six years ago. Now we have about 250 people. And the original idea for Portico, which my bosses, John Harris and Jim Vandehei, had, and they were kind enough to bring me along on this adventure, they saw the future in a way that I did not. The original notion of it was, which has just become more true every day, is that very quickly we would start using the web the way we, the, uh, more the way that we use TV. So... Six years ago, you'd wake up in the morning and the more common habit would be to spend 20 minutes at nytimes.com or 20 minutes at Real Clear Politics or 20 minutes uh, at uh, bostonglobe.com. And uh, the, the idea behind Politico was that very quickly we would click around and that we would... Uh, we, I just want to make sure it wasn't... Phone is barking. I just want to make sure it wasn't... Uh, <laughs> And then very quickly, we would get a stock quote from CNBC.com and a forecast from Weather.com. And the idea behind Politico was that if we put up a site about public life that had essential, relevant, illuminating content, that people would make it one stop. And uh, uh, luckily, that was true. Uh, but now that's changing even more, and uh, we no longer have uh, automatic eyeballs. And by that, I mean... When I grew up, we read the LA Times because it was in our driveway. We watched the NBC Nightly News because that's what our dad turned on. And so it didn't really matter if it served our household, which really had no, we were half an hour from Los Angeles, we were in a different county. Um, it didn't matter if it served us, that's what we had. Now, every single morning, whether you're the New York Times or um, Politico or um, anyone else uh, competing in this space, Every single morning, you have an opportunity to uh, get eyeballs or lose them. If we're serving you, uh, you'll be back. And if we're not, you have lots of other places to go, and you should. I warn our um, young reporters about what I call the nightclub theory. And the nightclub theory is that when someplace is hot, everyone goes there because everyone goes there. And we're very blessed. That's what Portico is right now. But... As you all know, six months later, nothing has changed about the nightclub, but no one goes there because nobody goes there. And so what we warn our reporters is we don't want to be Studio 54. Like We need to uh, find a way to prolong that cycle. And so that, uh, Tara, is the, is the challenge and opportunity for journalists, is that uh, whether it's through social media or through a loyal audience that we've developed on our own, uh, that... Uh, we have to uh, find a way to, to um, hook you back uh, every day. So, so let me ask you about that because, like, uh, in some sense, actually, I would argue that email is the vehicle, the chief vehicle mm -hmm. for Politico. Your emails, the other emails that mm -hmm. go out from Politico and 
I'm just curious about to what extent, what role email occupies. It's, I think it's your most expensive ad unit too, yeah. right? No, well, th- yeah, well, thank you for uh, asking about this. And this is this was uh, our first sort of revelation about viral marketing. And one of my things now is that it doesn't matter what business you're in, whether you're a minister, whether you're a professor, whether you're a sports team, you're in viral marketing. And you're trying to get people to click one more time, almost no matter what you're doing. And um, the, uh, 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 the newsletter that I do in the morning, uh, Politico Playbook, um, it started as an email that I did for two people, my bosses, uh, John Harris and Jim Vandehei. And it was, this was six years ago, and I would just send them an email in the morning about what was going to happen that day that we should cover, what we'd missed, what our competitors did, and like what we should be doing. And uh, Harris, who some of you know, who has a big mouth, he was talking to Howard Wolfson, who at the time was uh, the communications director for uh, uh, Senator uh, Clinton uh, when she was running for president. He's now a New York deputy mayor. And John said, you know, I get this great email from Mikey in the morning that tells me everything that's going on. And Howard said, like, can I have it? I was like, sure, why not? And so I would send it every morning. I would send it to Howard and John and Jim. And then his deputy, Phil Singer, wanted it. I'm like, sure. And... Then the Obama campaign heard about it, and then the RNC, and then the DNC, and then Adam Nagurney, and then uh, somebody at CBS. And I got so, I was forwarding it individually to every one of those people. <laughs> and so I was taking half an hour just to forward playbook. And uh, I, one day I finally sent them an email. I said, I know people don't like BCC, but if I BCC it, you'll get it half an hour early. And they were fine with that. And we still didn't recognized it was a product. We didn't post it. We didn't offer it to people. It was just like people wanted it, and so we sent it to them. And if we had taken the most valuable eyeballs in the world, every network anchor, every top newspaper editor, the West Wing, uh, congressional leadership, if we had said to them, we want you to read something else in the morning, uh, we don't think that you get enough stuff. They would have said you're on drugs. It would have been a total flop. And so uh, it just spread because people wanted it. And pretty soon we uh, let people sign up for it through the site, and then eventually you could uh, read it on the web, and now it's an app. And so you can get it however you want. Um, uh, But uh, that's a small example of how, and if you're putting things out on Twitter, if you have an Instagram feed, it's what you all are doing too. To what extent do you think the success of it has something to do with your own Personality and the way you make it a really, a really almost feels like family in some sense. And, and, and can I just add on to that? Um, how do you do it? <laughs> and, 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 and I say that. Be, I mean, I say that uh, because I, I, I don't know how you manage it. Because first of all, uh, do you sleep? Uh, because you've got to get up really early to do this. But I also know that you have an amazing ability. And, and I'm just wondering if you have, like, a computer with an algorithm or something. Because I'll get notes from you, like a personal note, on a subject that you know that I care about. And I know you're dealing with thousands of people. How do you have time no, to do that? No, but there's only one Mark McGinnis. <laughs> um, uh, no, so first on the sleep thing, um, I used to say um, uh, that I slept during Ari Fleischer's briefings. <laughs> and, and it was kind of true. Like, you will have to watch the C-SPAN cutaway camera. But um, that's... One day somebody told that to Ari, and he didn't think it was funny, so I, <laughs> I stopped saying that. Um, but uh, what, uh, what Playbook does is it's uh, – when I worked at the Washington Post, if I would in, – in those days, if you worked on paper, you went to work at like 10 in the morning. It was crazy. If I slept in, I woke up, and you still had the like, old school papers, I would read um, Maureen Dowd and um, Al um, Kamen. Yeah, thank you. Uh, who does, like, the federal personalities uh, column in uh, the Post. And my thinking was, if I'd read Maureen, and if I'd read Al Kamen, maybe Mary McGrory, if I ran into Don Graham in the elevator, I would have something to say. And, <laughs> and that was my system. And that's kind of what Playbook is, that it's, it's not a news summary. In fact, it's a, less of a news summary every day because more and more, if, if there's something you care about, you know about it, Right. And either you find out through social media or somebody tells you. And so, like, you kind of know the news. And so it's, it's mission, and it, it does this very, 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 very imperfectly and very unevenly. But it's, 
Its mission is, what are people going to be talking about today, tomorrow? If I'm booking a cable news show, like what am I thinking about today? If I'm Rick Stengel, what am I thinking about for next uh, week's time cover? If I'm Allison Mitchell, what am I thinking about for next Sunday's New York Times? And so that is, what are people going to be talking about? What do and and we even like label some of the like tidbits we call them elevator fodder because it's there. Like if it's like oh John Meacham has a book, book out today, like um, uh, oh they're going to close the Beltway for um, you know a year, whatever. Just like little <laughs> tidbits that that actually is true by the way. They're they're putting hot lanes in whatever those are, um, and so like the idea is to try to capture the conversation of people in this sort of like broadly defined. Um, Diaspora of Washington, New York, Silicon Valley, LA, um, and if it's if if I'm doing it right, it's the it's the things that you would want to read if you read every paper that I would have found the like roughly ten things. And sometimes we blow it in small ways. Sometimes we blow it in big ways. One that um, I've written about is um, I did way too little about Occupy. Like I don't like I don't do stunts. I don't do like there was just something about it. Um, and like it turned out to clearly be like one of the year's most interesting stories, and I was very late to catch on to it. But other things, hopefully, we catch on to first. So, hmm. other question? Yeah. Hello, my name is Julia Foster. I'm an education here at Cambridge. Um, so we just had an election where the kind of like, the platform that people find really interesting, at least if not influential, is Twitter, which you know, didn't exist, like barely existed. Mm. And by the way, at Mike Allen, if you follow me, I'll be grateful. I'll follow you. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, two elections ago. So can you talk a little bit about what you think that means for kind of the evolution of platforms and election cycle for now or the one after that? No, I want to ask you guys that because, like, I've, like uh, what I tell, uh, whenever I talk to students, I always tell them, like, whatever the next, whatever the new, new thing is in political news, you're going to have a million times better chance of finding out about it than we are. And, and I use the Walmart example. If you're, a, if you're a top executive at Walmart, even the, even if you kind of get the web, and they do, like, um, they have a new thing now where if you order from walmart.com, the store nearest to you gets credit for it. And the notion is that that encourages that store to push you onto the web for either replacements or things they don't have or gives them some incentive to push you to walmart.com. But if I'm a top executive at Walmart, what do I get is stores. Because stores are what I got, and, like, stores are how I became successful. And, like, we've got a political website. And so, like, that's sort of how we see the world. And so I'd love, like, you're, like, thinking about that. And, like, like I mean, is 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 Twitter it? Like, is there going to be something after it? Is it, is it going to be how we use Twitter? Like, I'd love to hear you guys on that. Here's the master. <laughs> what do you think? Like, what will we be saying in 2016? I think... Uh... I think email, 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 email. I think that like almost every. Wait, major... I thought email was gonna go away. No, of... no, no, no. I mean, hasn't yet, right? I think email is still underinvested in for the most part, um, and I think that um, I think television is gonna go away or be very different. Uh, just, just it was it felt almost pointless to watch the debates on TV, right, <coughs> given social media and even election night. Uh, election night, I felt like. I was surprised at how bad some of the online coverage was. It was like they wanted you to watch the TV. <laughs> They're trying to force you to television. You know, let me talk about the, the Twitter example that you raised earlier and how it kind of shapes things because I had the opportunity to, uh, I, I went to West Point and, uh, uh, for the third debate and I did some classes and then I watched the debate. We talked a little bit about it beforehand and then I watched it. But I had to write a column that night. And so I had my laptop up. And as I was watching the debate, I was I, I was watching my Twitter feed, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, and, I, and I, uh, a very serious uh, cadet came up to me afterwards and said, you know, uh, Mr. McKinnon, I, I noticed that you weren't really watching the debate. You were really, you know, you were watching your computer and your Twitter feed. And he said, are you really getting an honest mm-hmm. view of the debate? Mm-hmm. If, and I said, well, I'm trying to write a column. And he said, but he said, but yeah so you're letting all these other people kind of and it was shaping I was kind of thinking you know what's everybody else because I was mm-hmm. it's hard to get a quick analysis and I had to write right away and I was right. like and it had I, to last and, and I kind yeah, of wanted yeah. to know what everybody else was yeah. thinking but, but by doing that it wasn't really my pure 
my pure take on it, you know? That's awesome. And just to bolster both of your uh, points, um, uh, something that's forever changed uh, the way that uh, events are covered online. Uh, Google put out um, a press release or a, a, an email to reporters in the first debate about uh, the trending terms. Um, and I think that was the Bayonets debate, right? Like that was clearly one of them. But like the second or third uh, trending uh, term on Google was who's winning the debate? So people didn't turn it on. They Googled who's winning the debate. And so uh, we, the next debate, we took uh, a story and headlined it, who's winning the debate, and made it a... SEO. Uh, yeah, and made it a... Uh, tw uh, and it, it was awesome. It served the audience. Uh, uh, we made it an aggregation of the tweets of, the, of people like Mark, um, most famous tweeters. And it blew up uh, online. And then the minute the debate was over, we changed the headline to who won the debate. And it uh, uh, blew up. And then the next debate, everyone did it. And so, like, you're always going to see that with big events now because it just gets so much traffic. But it totally, like, bolsters your right. point. Right. Now, why are you such a uh, – look, I'm too, obviously. But I'm curious why you're such a big email guy. It's uh, – it has – it's the only – it's the only well-defined ROI online. Do you guys agree with that? It's the only it's the only guaranteed return on investment you can have online. Does anybody does somebody disagree with that? Well, does somebody the, think email's dead? The, the one thing I would say is just as an observation with my daughters, if I want to communicate with you them, text them, I text yeah. them. Yeah. yeah, and if I email them, I'll hear from them maybe a week later. You know, so. but, but texting can't bulk texting doesn't work is the challenge. It's a so, one to one. Yeah. So the, uh, my church, there's a 22 year old who. Uh, is the youngest person in his office, and he's never on his email. He's on Twitter all day. So if the people in his office want him, they tweet him to look at his email. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So mine's more of a somewhat of a question. But so and say who you are. Uh, I'm, I'm Nick Carnham, and I'm a PC here. Nice. Um, so maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I'm, I, I have a it's a love-hate relationship with Twitter. And I see, I see what all of you are talking about. Absolutely, the more you know, checking your Twitter while you're watching the debate and uh, the pages, the aggregation of all the tweets and everything. But sometimes I don't, I don't want to know what else everyone else is thinking. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't. I, I hated it when CNN did the little uh, independent voters tracker thing on the screen. I, I'm not a fan at all. It's just sort of depressing. Is there any hope that for for that that's you know in the opposite direction ever? Are we doomed? Yeah, watch News Hour. I mean, really, I mean that's the great thing about this, and why I have less and less patience all the time for people who like complain about the coverage being too sensational or whatever. Um, like on healthcare, like yes, there was a lot of coverage of the politics of healthcare, but you could also like dig as deep as you wanted on the substance of it. And yeah, if if you don't like the way TMZ covers the campaign, there's BBC. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, uh, like, I'm embracing what you say. I'm very much the same way. I don't, like, like but, Twitter's not where I get my news in the morning, but more and more, like, I ask people, like, we like we try and do top tweets because pe people want to see them. Uh, but, but, but I'm very much on the same page. Back to the question of how you do it. When do you get up and what do you do? Yeah, okay, so the... Um, it's uh, playbook is very much a group project. Most of it is. You have people feeding you stuff, and people that work for yeah, you. Yeah, I don't know. Anybody who works for me, I do it by myself. Um, uh, but uh, but I'm fortunate that I have a hundred thousand people in the playbook audience who uh, playbook community who email me things, and so um, almost all of it comes from either things I've emailed or my personal experience. Um, I'm around. I'm out and about in town all day, and. Um, and I do in the morning folder and yeah and then yeah there's not yeah there's not there could be a better system there definitely could and then I do uh, I am big on the print front pages and the reason for that is that still and, and this changes day by day but um, still the best most expensive minds in print journalism are still focused on those pieces of so do you scan thing. all those first thing in yeah the morning? and and so um, do you scan um, them online or do you get hard copy? Um, I get 
USA Today and The Globe and The Trib email them to me. The other ones, uh, the other people post online, so I can I find it there. Um, uh, and so you go online to get the hard copy front page image. Yes, and then uh, uh, I work in the wilds of Roslyn, Virginia, which is Arlington, uh, right over the bridge from Georgetown, and we get in our building the print papers come at like five thirty, and I often will go out and get them, but. Um, Sometimes I don't, which like is illuminating to me uh, and, wor and worrisome, because I think most of the people in this room like get the like economics, like um, the print products are still like unbelievably important to these news organizations. It's why in the New York Times digital tiers, um, at least for a while, uh, some of them were less if you took the Sunday paper because they want to keep that circulation. And New York Times readers being the way they are, they, there was this online thing of where you could donate your Sunday paper because the people didn't want it, but they wanted the, they wanted the lower price. Um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, Portico has a print edition on Capitol Hill. It's an important part of our revenues. I was just uh, talking to somebody from a national paper who, like, they're trying to concentrate their circulation more, but they have tens of millions of dollars in the print. So, um like the, the print products need to last if we're going to have Kabul bureaus and Frankfurt bureaus, and you know you like uh, this isn't exactly right, but the proportions are roughly right. Um, and this is true when I was at Time Magazine. This is true when I was at the Washington Post. Uh, for every dollar that you lose out of the print product, the magazine or the newspaper, you get back roughly a dime online because it's so much cheaper. There's so many other places to spend it: HuffPost, Politico, wherever. And you get back a penny for mobile, and that's why the shakeout has not occurred. And like a lot of these organizations feel like they're in a better place. Um, I think there are still dramatic well, changes coming. It's because of that math. Make sure I got, got that right, because that's that's an amazing thing and a great way to describe it. So you're saying like that net return. What uh, what what what? Uh, and th this isn't precise, but it's pretty close. Uh, if if I'm Time Magazine and I lose a dollar. From a print advertiser, they'll put back a dime into digital, right, and right. a penny into mobile. Right. It's about the cost of advertising. Yeah, right. That, because that yeah, a because half a half page ad in the New York Times requires an order of magnitude more page views on NewYorkTimes.com to command yeah. the same yeah. revenue. Yep, yeah. that's that's a, a, a brilliant way to. So I mean, but Politico does really well in part because it's a niche audience, which kind of very influential, very high value demographic. That that's not a model that scales, right? That's not a model that works in yeah. No, it's, like it's yeah. No, LA, it's, for example. No, it's hard. And, and thank you for pointing that out. And we'll, like, we're very fortunate that like we want traffic and page views because it, in some ways, signals um, uh, that you're ahead or that you're interesting or uh, whatever. But it's not our most important value, like because our audience is you. Our audience is opinion leaders, um, you know. The, the you know Ken Melman, the manager of the um, Bush Cheney Four campaign, used to say that um, uh, in any group of ten people, in any community of ten people, nine of them are going to turn to one person for advice about music, movies, cars, and ultimately who to vote. That's the Sunday school teacher, it's the little league coach, it's the uh, local office holder, it's the small business owner, it's the car dealer, and. We try to reach that one person in ten around the country, and like some news organizations now have like tote boards of how things are um, uh, uh, clicking and um, what's getting the most traffic. We won't even tell our reporters their traffic. No one sees it. They can figure it out a little bit. The biggest ones from the most emails, but we won't tell our reporters their traffic because we don't want them to think. Um, that that's our most important value. The most important value is that we be trusted. And that comes in several flavors. One of them is that you know that when you come to Politico, we won't waste your time. That what's there is important and worth reading. Also that it's both literally accurate, um, like two and two is four, and it's more broadly true, that we're connecting the dots in the right way. And that's how we get people like you. And a small example of that and why... Um, 
uh, your point about our like very specialized audience, why what we sell is our audience, like people like you. Uh, David Rogers, um, who uh, uh, covers Capitol Hill, used to cover for the uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, um, uh, uh, no question the most respected reporter on Capitol Hill, um, covers the budget, covers appropriations. Um, uh, don't tell David, but his stories don't get a lot of traffic. Um, and David is extremely expensive. But the White House Budget Director reads it. The Senate Appropriations Chairman reads it. And so, like for us, it's a great value. It's exactly... Because <laughs> a lot of people want to advertise to those guys. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, hi, I'm Hannah Seymour. I'm a policy student and a former journalist. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, piggybacking off of the trust thing, I know that I'm one of many people who wakes up and reads your email in the morning, and Thank you. so there's part of me, though I read other sources, that sees what you put out as the influential stories of the day because they're in your playbook. And I mostly see you uh, aggregating conventional news sources, and I was wondering if you look beyond that, if you look at blogs, if you look at other things, or because I can see somebody's career literally being launched because they get put in your playbook, or do you feel yeah. that isn't your role? No, 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 no. Thank you so much for asking that. I'm like, that's extremely astute, and um, it's like, like you're pointing to like a flaw in playbook and how it could be better. And I'd be grateful for y'all's help in that. Like, it's time. That's it. And like, I don't um, uh, because playbook isn't my job. Like, I have a day job. I'm. I have. Um, uh, responsibilities at Politico and so um, I just wake up in the morning and I do as much as I can um, <laughs> and but I'm always grateful and this is where I could be more fluent in Twitter or find smarter ways to figure out what's driving conversation um, do, do you think Playbook has shaped Politico or maybe I should say how has Playbook shaped Politico? I don't um, I feel like we talk to each other like um, like it like my values are, Politico's values are, Playbook's values. So like in that sense, like we all have the same DNA. Uh, we all, we sort of, we sort of, Playbook serves the sort of larger political audience in a specific way at a specific time. Um, I don't think its its audience. I think is pretty congruent with uh, Politico more broadly. But but definitely, like I appreciate what you said, and I'm glad you put it on my mind because I sort of knew it, but you articulated it. And like, if you see something out there that's in the blogosphere, please, 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 like a lot of people in this room know I'm very email friendly. I'm Mike at Politico.com and I'll answer you and I'll read your email. And um, if there's something I'm missing, I'd be grateful to it because like what I sometimes do is um, I need to be more intentional about it is like from the left, from the right, like um, and quick surf, We'll try and get some blogs, but I'm going to do better. So thank you for saying that. Okay, let me ask a couple questions about the future here. What, 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 what are you thinking about at Politico for the next, uh, the next four years in terms of your business and how you might co cover the 2016 race differently than you covered the 2012 race? Yeah, thank you for asking that. And um, I'd love to hear your think about this. I'll tell you our like, thinking is um, – we just recognize that we have to be very like sharp and smart and tireless about knowing where you are. And if you want your news through social media, we need to be there. If you want your news through video, we need to be there. And we're going to keep um, uh, growing. Like we think of Portico as a buffet. Like we try and have whatever dish there you want. So if you want breaking news, that you have it there. If you want uh, opinion, you have it there. If you want profiles, you have it there. And Nobody's going to eat everything, but we hope that you'll come away satisfied. And so we're going to keep adding dishes to our buffet. One thing that we know we could do better is long-form, in-depth, narrative writing. We're investing in that. Uh, we know that we could do foreign affairs uh, better. We're investing in that. Um, and there's lots of things that we could do uh, uh, better. So, But I, I want to hear is from you. investigative component? Yeah, and I think... Um, uh, like uh, we do a lot of that. Like we were very good on like where the money was going. We we were the first 
people to discover to sort of connect the dots and realize that Republican groups plan to spend a billion dollars on the outside separate from the party in the campaign. And they came uh, dang close. I'm not sure what they got for their money. Now, but one of the things that I know that you're doing, which I think is very smart, is that you're, you're really getting sp- specialized uh, policy area reporters, right? And, and uh, Yeah, know, so on, just to talk that through. Like yeah. healthcare. Or yeah. Through, yeah. So um, uh, our business sort of has uh, three pieces. One is uh, the website. One is the print paper um, for Capitol Hill. And the third piece is uh, what Mark is talking about, uh, uh, Politico Pro, which is uh, specialized policy sites. The first three were energy, healthcare, and technology. Uh, since then, uh, we've added uh, defense, financial services, uh, taxation, um, and uh, the uh, oh, and uh, transportation. And uh, those are paid sites, paid services for. Uh, people who are specialists in that area, whether they're a congressional committee or whether they're an association executive or just someone who's passionate about that area. And by having that be um, a paid uh, site, it allowed us to do two things. One is we were able to say that rather than putting up a paywall or rather than charging people for parts of um, Portico, and I think you're going to see more and more of that, like... uh, a kind of undercover, very interesting media story is uh, a few months ago, a lot of you know this, the New York Times pulled the crossword puzzle out of the digital bundle and you pay extra for it. I think there's going to be a lot more of that. Instead of doing that, we said, okay, what's on Politico now is free. What we charge for is going to be new. And so we went and invested in new reporters, new editors, new technology. The Politico Pro, rather than uh, you can flag any word, you want any bill, any um, senator, any member, and uh, we don't just push you a link or an alert. We push you the full text so that uh, the assumption is that uh, these people are busy. They're either walking around the hill, and so it's a website designed so that you never have to go to it. Um, Email. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you win. Uh, I'm not. I'm thrilled to hear you say. Uh, and but what's allowed us to do is to keep what's on Politico free, free, and it's allowed us to invest in, uh, for these, uh, the, the three or four that we just had, uh, we hired uh, close to 100 people, uh, 50 wow. journalists, and a bunch on the business side. We started with um, two experienced, in each of these areas, we started with two experienced editors and basically the three best reporters in that area. We went to Google and said, who's the best tech policy reporter? We uh, went to um, uh, the energy publication and hired their three best people. And so we started with that, and they've been successful, and now um, uh, several of them have more than three reporters. I think most of them do now. So we've been able to hire journalists at a time that almost no one is. Bloomberg was, and I think that's sort of tailed off, and there's no one else. Reuters, I think, is doing some hiring. But very few people are hiring journalists. We're hiring tons of them. Like, we're right now actively looking for new journalists, which is a great blessing, and it's because of this business model. Okay, last 60 seconds. Any predictions on the fiscal cliff, Pelosi and Petraeus? Uh, <laughs> Pelosi stays. Pelosi uh, stays. That was easy. It's not easy. Uh, I don't think that's the conventional wisdom. Uh, uh, I don't know. Petra- y'all say something interesting about Petraeus. What do you think about Petraeus? Um, and uh, the cliff. Uh, here's my quick thing on the cliff. Um, that I think that we sort of think that there's going to be a deal to make a deal. Um, that by the time we get to Christmas Eve, Eve, hopefully Eve, Eve, um, uh, that there'll be some framework. Okay, this is how we're going to do entitlement reform. This is going to do how we're going to do tax reform. Uh, this is how we're going to do. Um, uh, this is like how much revenue we're going to get. Um, uh, there's two sort of impediments to that. Um, one is um, like some like a lot of things we sort of like deduce or try to connect the dots. Something we know from the top is that the administration has no intention of giving on um, uh, letting the Bush tax rates expire for the top incomes. They have no extension of extend ex- intention of extending them. The 
their theory is that they lose all their leverage by extending it, and they're going to play extreme hardball on that. Also, something else very fascinating to watch is uh, the Paul Ryan effect. Now that he's back as a congressman, some of you maybe saw in Playbook or elsewhere this morning, uh, he's, he gave his first interview to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And he said, I want to be part of the solution, uh, which is very interesting. And um, he has so much credibility with the most conservative uh, members of the House that, that um, Speaker Boehner runs everything by him. All the pieces of the, the last grand bargain went by him. Uh, uh, Speaker Boehner, before he gave his speech the other day, he ran it by Ryan, who was off uh, hunting. Um, and if we assume he's running for president uh, in 2016, and if he is, how does that affect what happens? Okay, that's going to be a very, very fascinating factor to watch. Thank you so much. No, thank you guys very much for a great conversation.